adults to make decisions about their risk and yet not giving elders the same right to make a decision. Now, if you're unable to make decisions for yourself, that's different. But most older adults are perfectly capable of judging their risks and benefits. And people will say, well, in a public health crisis, we make decisions for the good of everybody. Fine, but then make the burden equal across populations. Right now, we are overburdening older people at their own expense. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. There's just lots of places that you may have heard we speak. In addition to elderhood, some of you may have read Louise's recent piece in The Atlantic called Ageism is Making the Pandemic Worse, or her New York Times op-ed for older people, despair, as well as COVID-19 is costing lives. She's been on KQED Forum, and a topic just old people are dying, ageism, and the coronavirus response. She was on a Q&A for the San Francisco Public Library about elderhood during the pandemic. What I really appreciate, Louise, is that you really show respect for elders of all different kinds. I mean, not just the quote-unquote people that the public may perceive as successful. And I think that you are a spokesperson for ordinary people who are growing older. So I appreciate that. I thought it might be interesting for us to just hear how you came to decide that you would refer to the group of people that you care so passionately about as elders and not older adults or seniors or these other terms that people reference. Well, it was somewhat circuitous, and there were a few reasons for that. One was that I thought the only way to get older people in every conversation, so I mean everything from are we making clothes for older people? Are we designing homes? You know, this is what At Home With Growing Older is about. We design homes for kids and younger adults, and then we blame old age for the mismatch between the person and the home. That's not a problem of old age. That's a problem of design and not thinking about all populations. And we see this in healthcare as well and in so many other sectors. When I was thinking about how do we give this very long phase of life, for most of us, it will be much longer than childhood was. How do we give it equal stature? I didn't make up the word elderhood. It existed but hadn't gotten much play. So I thought, well, we talk about childhood, we talk about adulthood. The only way to enter old age into that phrase to give it an analogous term. And then if you have childhood, you have a child. If you have adulthood, you have an adult. If you have elderhood, you have an elder. So that was one of the roots. But there's a second one. So actually in the medical literature and many other publications, we are required to use older adult only. You can't use senior, you can't use geriatric, you can't use elderly, you can't use elder. And the reason for that is that every few years, people do polls of which terms for old age older people like. And it turns out they don't like any. And so the least offensive one is older adult. 
But I have a problem with that because I feel like it actually panders to the very ageism it purports to combat, right? Because you're not actually acknowledging that it's a different stage, even though, you know, a child knows there's a difference between an eight-year-old, a 48-year-old, and an 88-year-old. We can all tell the difference. Then if everybody's an adult, you don't need houses and clothes and healthcare for older people, right? Because they're just adults. So it undermines that. And then older is relative. You know, eight is older than five, 60 is older than 40. And at some point we are frankly old. And until we get used to that, we will not be able to create a world that welcomes us at all the ages of our lives. You've given us a lot to think about because I participated in a conversation as part of the age and disability friendly work. And some people were not used to elders. I'm very comfortable with the term elders because actually in the Asian cultures, elders is a sign of respect as well. So I think that's really interesting that in medical literature, you must use the term older adult. You speak so eloquently about elders in elderhood and you reference so many other thinkers and their work and you also tell so many wonderful stories of you your own family your patients and i wonder what motivated you to write such a book when there are a lot of books on aging and you're such a busy person <laughs> there are lots of books on aging and there are lots of great books on aging and i hope i read most of them but I didn't feel like there was one that had quite the right scope. Usually they have a focus or an angle. And what I wanted to show was how old age intersects with every aspect of life throughout life. So that's why, you know, I felt like we needed the science and the medicine, but also the literature and the history and the anthropology and the real people's stories and younger old people and older old people and the exceptional elders you referenced earlier. And then frankly, all the rest of us, because the problem with holding up the exceptional elder as a model is that, you know, if being exceptional is success, then the vast majority of us are failures. And that seems like a really counterproductive construct to me. So, you know, I thought maybe I would have something to say about this. And then I actually started out writing a fairly traditional book. And what I found was that maybe because my training in literature is more in fiction, and I've always been a little bit of a geek about how form can be used to support content. It's sort of like the architecture and design of literature or advocacy. I realized that in pulling together all those pieces, I could both help readers of a certain kind. You know, some people are more fact-based and some are more story-based. And if you knew it was just morsels and that you'd get to another one of the morsels you preferred soon, that would help the reader move through. But I could also juxtapose all these parts of life so that it wouldn't be old age is so often reduced to just, it's this biological thing we can't do anything about. And that is wrong. And it's an abdication of our personal and social responsibility. And yet all the cultural messages tell us that. But I thought in juxtaposing the health prejudice and real people's stories with what's happened historically and what happens across cultures, it would help people see just how much we shape the reality that people find disappointing. And it's not that there aren't bodily changes that are real and disappointing. I'm already old enough to recognize that better. But it's that there are so many ways to make life better for all of us as we age if we only acknowledge that potential and then work towards it. I've certainly found that in the age and disability friendly work, because many of the changes that are advocated for 
like crossing streets and providing longer times are, are useful for young children or for someone who has a disability. There is, I think, an incredible ripple effect. If you can pay attention to elders and their needs, it actually benefits all of us. And you really speak to that so well. If you actually look at the United States Department of Health and Human Services list of special populations, it includes all children, all elders, all people with disabilities, all people of color, all female people, and the list goes on and on and on. In other words, 96, 97% of the human population, it's ridiculous. You know, we're basically making this very small percent the norm and then having the rest of us struggle, whereas life is diversity and the more we are inclusive, the more everybody can thrive. There's a lot of passionate people that are about making the voice of elders heard more universally across society. So as you use the term design elderhood, you speak about having a society that recognizes unique strength and a culture that responds to our limitations with creativity and imagination. And I really appreciate that too, because you talk about that every stage of life, including this elder stage, there are challenges and people don't always respond to it well. And how can we approach it with imagination and creativity and respect? There's also incredible data that people who have more positive attitudes about old age are more resilient. So by that, I don't mean you bounce back from everything, but you recognize I'm going to do things, but I might have to do it differently. A few months ago, someone told me a story about a guy who's now in his 90s. They used to see this guy running. He'd set off and he'd come back hours later, just like the fittest guy in the neighborhood. In his mid-70s, he switched to long-distance bike riding. And now he's 94 and he walks and he's still gone for hours. So here's a man whose body changed and he probably didn't like it. He probably loved being a runner. He'd been a runner for 70-some years. But he recognized that the important thing was I like to be outside and I like to be moving my body. And so some people would say, I can't run, it's over, I've been running all these years, I'm so disappointed. And instead he said, okay, now I'm gonna bike and now I'm gonna walk. And so the parts that he loved, the exercise, the outdoors, the seeing his neighbors, he got to keep doing. There's a way in which you can acknowledge and adapt and the people who are able to do that are the ones who tend to thrive and continue to grow and learn. A lot of aging services does a disservice with the very best of intentions because often it's about we are here to help you instead of we are here to co-create a world in which you can help yourself and decide whether you need help, whether you want help, what that might look like, how much you can participate in. But we literally create a world that's helpful in a way that says there's nothing you can do for yourself. And that actually creates some of the dependency and ill health that we then have to further respond to. And there are points in all our lives where we'll all need help without question. But it might be that we're making it a little worse, even with the very best of intentions. I've certainly experienced that myself. My mom, who's 100 and lives with us, has unfortunately experienced some falls and had to spend some time in a rehab facility. And I was very impressed with a physical therapist who asked her, what are her goals? It wasn't like they imposed some goals or demeaned her by thinking, well, you can't walk now. At that point, I think she was 98. But he asked her what her goals were. And her goals were that she wanted to be able to walk upstairs again, because otherwise she wouldn't be able to live in our house anymore. And she was determined and she walked upstairs again. 
that's a terrific physical therapist. But some people would say, oh, 98 year old, you know, here's your walker, you know, or just assume they were on a walker to begin with, as opposed to climbing stairs. You don't know unless you ask and you can't help unless you know what needs helping. Right. And I've never witnessed her getting into the bathtub. Turns mm-hmm. out she was doing it rather unsafely. And <laughs> so the occupational therapist, he also very gently worked with her to help her figure out a safer way. I still do coach her about that, but she knows she can still take a bath because she was very insistent she didn't want to take a shower. She just loved taking a bath and she wanted to take a bath. And so we made it work, at least for now. And I think you're right. Bigger challenges and smaller challenges we can address that way. We also teach people sort of while growing up, and this might be because of the ways we tend to have different generations fairly separately, or at least we have until recently but people tend to acquire a certain amount of knowledge about helping adults and helping kids as they grow up, but they tend not to have the same depth or breadth of knowledge about being useful to an older person. And we say that's okay. It's kind of like you can't abandon your children or you might go to prison, but you can neglect your parents or grandparents if they need help, and that's okay. So I think we need to set a standard where we all need to know about all age groups and be responsible for each other. Because when younger people think, oh, I'm not looking forward to growing older, in the first place, they probably don't know the upsides. Most older people are actually quite happy. And in the second place, in ignoring it, they're actually creating and perpetuating the parts of it that scare them most. Thank you. I think just giving that example of the man who adapted how he stayed outside, Mm -hmm. we can all think about how we would adapt and modify our lives. And there's some great techniques for getting into bathtubs, but I don't know if I would have thought of them if somebody hadn't taught them to me. You have to think to ask and you have to keep asking until you find someone who knows the answer because some people wouldn't be as good as that physical therapist. Your mom got lucky, I think. Yeah. Well, she was very insistent. She's like, oh no, but the way that I do it works for me. And I'm like, well, we've all witnessed how you do it. And it looks very unsafe, especially since you've just been in the hospital because you couldn't walk. So it was an interesting lesson for her. But to her credit, she did adapt. Kind of a different note. You are a geriatrician, but also a wonderful writer and reader. And I think that we're interested in how you came to wear both hats. I can speak for myself as a fellow physician that I think many times people pigeonhole physicians. They don't necessarily think of us as creative, but someone like you who writes about it so well, it can be helpful to people. In thinking about how much you clearly have read because you reference so many other people in your book, I'd love for you to just talk about that and books or essays or things we might not know about that that you would recommend? For me, the reading and the writing were my first love. And I sort of went into medicine when I realized in some ways it's a much safer choice than literature or publishing. It's a long haul, but basically once you get into the groove, you march as told, you know, over a decade or more, and then there you are. So there's a security to that. But I also think one of the things I like about medicine is people's stories and the entry into people's lives. And I think that's what literature does. 
many people say, well, I'm only going to read nonfiction because it's true. And one of the key distinctions I like to make with people is that nonfiction is true as in factual, but really good literature, whether fiction or nonfiction, should also be true like capital T as in universal truths about the experience of being a human being. And so I think that the dance of science and literature is a really good one if what you are trying to do is serve real human beings. In medicine, we think a lot about data and we want to make decisions based on big data and statistics. That's a really good way of finding out what works well over populations or for treating certain diseases or conditions. But the only way to know the best thing for a person is to get to know that human being and what matters to him or her or them. Some of that is what I learned from literature. I also find it a great way of learning about the experiences of people who are very different from me and also different ways of thinking. I mean, I have some favorite aging books and those are referenced in elderhood, but I also think at this historical moment, there's a way in which we can all grow and learn, which you know, growing and learning is actually part of healthy aging and makes life better and helps us adapt, but also be part of the more current conversations through reading various things. And we're seeing a lot of suggestions about that, but I'm going to go a little broader and a little funkier than at least what I'm seeing in most people's lists. So maybe that will be of interest. There's a lot going on in these current times that we're living in. So first might ask you about special challenges that you feel people are facing in the time of this pandemic. You certainly addressed that to the Atlantic article and the New York Times op-ed that I referenced. Well, it poses special challenges for older people in a variety of ways. One is that the risk of bad disease seems to be higher. And people often ask, so what's that about? And some of it is having what we call comorbidities, which is other diseases, high blood pressure, diabetes, etc. Some of it seems to be a decrease in physiologic reserve that happens with aging. And what I mean by that is when we start life, we have lots of extra function in all our organs, right? So people can lose one kidney, the other kidney works well enough. But as we get older, the amount of extra function each organ has is lower, which means that if you challenge it, if you're asking more of it, it can't always respond. And COVID asks a lot of the human body. There are some immune system differences. So older bodies are more likely to get stuck in the inflammation phase that causes a lot of the damage from COVID. So you have to think about that increased risk. But on the flip side, there's also increased risk from the harms of being isolated. Because when people are isolated, they often lack the intellectual cognitive stimulation, the social stimulation, the physical stimulation. And yes, that's true for almost everyone. But again, because of this lowered reserve, it's more likely to lead to increased risk. You know, I've had many patients say, just in the last couple months, I feel like my memory is worse. And that is generally from an older person living alone who maybe has some Zoom ability or maybe not. The brain is not getting what it needs. I mean, you can sort of think of it as a muscle, and if you're not using your muscles, then they're not working as well. Then literally, that's happening to people's muscles. There is also the time horizon issue. When I published about should we be freeing the elders, 
my colleague who talks about older people in skilled nursing and residential congregate residential care facilities are basically in solitary confinement without judicial review. And when we were talking about freeing them up, I got a note from someone who said, well, look, I'm 61 and I have this underlying condition, but I'm okay with staying inside for a year or two. Well, 61 is really different than say 91 if you're already living not at home, you know, your horizon could be a year or two. And so I think one of the critical differences is that you can walk around San Francisco today and you'll see lots of people not wearing masks and certain restaurants up and running and not doing what they should be doing, etc. We are allowing adults to make decisions about their risk and yet not giving elders the same right to make a decision. Now, if you're unable to make decisions for yourself, that's different. But most older adults are perfectly capable of judging their risks and benefits. And people will say, well, in a public health crisis, we make decisions for the good of everybody. Fine, but then make the burden equal across populations. Right now, we are overburdening older people at their own expense. And I'd be fine if we were doing it across the board, but we're not. And we're stripping them of agency, which is based basically a human and civil rights violation. So I think people should get to decide. But I also think we need to give people the information. And just based on my patients and friends, I would say people will make different choices. Some people say, I'm staying in, it's unsafe. Other people say, I'm going to see my grandkids, but I'm taking the following precautions. Other people say, look, I would rather live a good life for the next weeks or months, whatever I get. And then I'm fine with dying of this but I will not live in this prison where I have no hope and no life worth living. But those are the decisions we're letting younger people make. If you are a citizen who's allowed to work and vote and do everything else, why aren't you allowed to make these decisions too? That's straight up prejudice in my book. I do think as we get older generally, and probably for all adults, we need to think about and be able to talk about our death. And we need to say, I'm going to have a conversation. Here's what I'm willing to put up with. And here's what I'm not willing to put up with. So if you're over 80 and you get COVID, we know that a certain number of people won't have any symptoms at all. We know that from studies on the Princess cruise ship, and we know that from some nursing home studies. So some people, even though they're old, have no symptoms. Other people get sick and go to the hospital. Now, over age 50 and 60, especially if you're over 80, your risk of death goes up. It does go up. But even the people over age 80, the highest numbers of deaths we've seen are 15 to 20%. That means the majority are still getting better. It does seem like if you need to go on a ventilator, if you need a breathing machine, your chances get really bad. But those are the kind of conversations we have to have. We have to have in families. And sometimes when I'm giving these talks, people will come up to me and say, look, I keep trying to have this conversation with my adult children. And they say, oh, it's too depressing to discuss my death. Well, that's sort of robbing the person of control over their life and their death. In talking about your death, you get to choose how to live. And when we don't let people choose, we're again stripping them of their natural human rights, of their agency, of their control over their life. There's no age at which people don't like to be in control of their own lives. So I think maybe we all need to, and certainly as we get older, be braver about saying, you know, here's what I want, here's what I don't want. There's some great sites like Prepare for Your Care or the conversation project where people can work through this either alone or with other people and make their preferences clear even to themselves. And then you can make better decisions about you know, risks you wanna take or don't wanna take. Well, in this current time, we're also in the post-George Floyd murder, seeing institutional and structural racism having a front and center place 
clearly structural racism is an issue that our country and the world for that matter has to deal with. And so we have these issues of structural ageism that things like the pandemic call to attention and structural racism. And I wonder if you could speak to the intersection of that. Of course, there's some things that are different, but there are some things where I think allies can support each other or think about how they are interconnected or interrelated. I mean, the age-friendly movement in San Francisco actually became the age and disability-friendly movement. So during this time, I think there's this urgent feeling about how to combat institutional racism, implicit bias, and those kinds of things. And implicit bias obviously affects people who are elders as well. So I'd love you to share your thoughts. We have this society built around the norm, a white, heterosexual, able-bodied Christian male between the ages of 20 and 50, let's say. So whenever you're addressing the structural issues for any group, you may help get at the way the structure norms to a minority rather than to our diversity and complexity as humans. That said, for COVID, it's very clear that age is a risk perhaps more biologically, although in the Atlantic article and in the book, I talk about the ways the healthcare system is structurally ageist and it remains so. We saw that in the COVID response. But if you put race and age together, being Black at all ages dramatically increases your risk for getting COVID and for having bad outcomes. The risk is actually greater for younger people, probably because of occupational hazards. But if you look at all the nursing homes nationwide, ones that have more than 25% Black residents, even if you make all the other factors the same, income, quality of nursing home, quality of medical care, proximity to a hospital, comorbidities, the whole thing, you make everything else exactly the same. And the risk for people in that nursing home doubles. Nationwide for older people receiving Medicare, if you're Black, you have four times the risk. If you're Latino, you have two times the risk of dying from COVID. And if you're Asian, you have a 50% increase. So it's very clear that there is a hierarchy a gradient and that these things are related because we see age and we see race. And I do think they need to be called out separately because there are some separate issues, but we also lose opportunities to really make meaningful change when we don't see the ways they interact. For the first many months of this crisis, we heard about old people dying and increased risk in people of color, particularly Black people as if you couldn't both be an older person and a person of color, and that that wouldn't have meaning. I should also throw in here that the other group, if we're talking broad strokes at higher risk, is men. San Francisco, we have a small sample size, but about 60% of cases and 65% of deaths are in men. And nationwide, men seem to be at higher risk for hospitalization and bad outcomes. And we don't yet know whether that has to do with men are less likely to complain and more likely to show up late for care, and that might be a problem, or if there are actual biological reasons for that difference. More broadly, we need to consider if we just focus in on fixing ageism or we just focus in on fixing structural racism, I'm not sure we will, particularly for the healthcare system, blow it up and reconfigure it in a way that will be better for all of human health because 
Our health system is currently ranked 37th in health outcomes. We brag about it all the time. It's actually not very good. Hugely expensive compared to every other country on the planet. One of my very astute students thought it would be impossible to change medicine because it was so entrenched and structured. And then he watched our medical center and others nationwide basically in the period of two weeks, you know, reprioritize everything and change what was happening where. And that means it can do it. So it's a matter of it wanting to do it. Well, I have lots of other questions of my own, but I should share the platform with our audience who have many questions that they'd like to pose. So I will pass the baton to Susie. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Stelz says, I'm so outraged at the huge number of nursing home and long-term care residents dying from COVID-19. Where is the collective outrage? Anyone doing anything about it? Fabulous comment. So actually, nursing homes have received more attention in recent months than they've probably received in my whole lifetime, honestly, from the media. It's interesting because when I'm contacted about media and when I go speak, a majority of people who are interested are over age 60. And actually, the media now, I've had to explain really basic things about old age and nursing homes to people in their 20s and 30s. So a huge range of people and outlets are paying attention to it. Are they paying a little bit less already? Yes. I think the reopening is getting more attention. There are lots of groups nationwide working on how did this happen and why did it happen? It seems like the larger nursing homes are more likely to have this. A lot of it has to do with how we've set up nursing home care. We say, you know, we're a society that really values family, but we kind of at some point send people off to places. And sometimes that's a wonderful thing. I mean, I have had lots of patients and friends who've moved to places they've really enjoyed living at because you have community. But other times people have to go against their choices. And then some of the conditions in which people live are pretty bleak. And this is another place where the intersectionality Makiko was just asking about comes in because the people who work there are paid minimum wage or slightly above, basically not a living wage. And they often live as a result in really dense housing areas and have to take public transit. And all those things increase their risk for infection. These are the people of color with the higher rates of infection. And so they're bringing it to the nursing home or they're getting it in the nursing home because nursing home residents are at higher risk risk and often go to the hospital and they're bringing it back to their communities. So these issues are really related. We need a different funding structure. We need to stop having regulations that pander to the huge for-profit nursing home lobby. Like the star valuation sometimes has value, but other times doesn't correlate with quality of life or quality of care. We also need to decide, are these medical facilities or are they homes? Because I think they're sort of in this twixt and tween place where they're a little bit medical and they're a little bit home. And so nobody quite feels responsible. There are lots of organizations working on this. So there's AMDA is the American Medical Directors Association. The Great Panthers have a big advocacy work about this with a lot of people in the Bay Area. California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, Elder Justice, 
if people keep raising these issues, that will help. Unless we keep it at the forefront, I fear that not much will happen because often when people get into a nursing home, they're no longer voting and that's what politicians listen to. Total percentage of U.S. citizens in a nursing home at any one point is 4%, but more so for women than men, but live over age 80 and your chances go up considerably 20%, 40%. So it may be in many of our futures and it behooves us both as good citizens and even for self-interest to make this humane. We talk about the horrible things that people used to do to poor people and people with disabilities in the past. It's very clear that they're doing many of these things to people with mental illness, people who are differently abled, and people who are very old in nursing homes. There are some other questions coming from the way healthcare is being delivered. And one of them by Rachel Friedman is, I teach psychology students on providing therapy to older adults right now via telehealth. What is the first piece of advice you would give them or the first thing that comes to mind? Honestly, the first thing that always comes to mind is these are actually human beings because sometimes, especially when we're young, and I think this is so ubiquitous globally that we can't be blamed for this, but young people think of old people as other. And that's already dehumanizing instead of imagining themselves into the person. I think the second piece of advice is don't underestimate and be aware that the older person may themselves be underestimating the potential of their life and themselves because if they're well acculturated, that's our cultural message. And that you need to be focusing on all the same things you would focus on with somebody younger, which is what the person's worried about and what their priorities are, but also thinking about purpose and identity and relationships and sex and whatever else the person thinks of and death, you know, like all these things, this is why people get therapy for things they have trouble discussing in their real lives. And I think just showing that respect, understanding, yes, some of the issues will be different as people are older, but the creativity, the work, all of that should, should remain unchanged and respectful of our shared humanity. Yes, we are who we are no matter what age. <laughs> Even if the person in the mirror is a bit of a surprise. That's right. Or how we look on Zoom, no? Yes. <laughs> so coming from this sort of area of how we value older age and this phase of life, this other question from Candice relates to that too. Aging isn't considered sexy to corporate sponsors, which makes it difficult to get funding for nonprofits in this field. Do you think the big cultural change starts with our education system in planting the seeds for the younger generation to view aging as a natural process and thereby value it more as they become our new leaders? Yes, I think we need to be teaching about it. I mean, this is part of the structural you know, injustice that happens. When I started medical school, I was going to become a pediatrician. And part of that, I love kids. Kids are adorable. But it was also that at my university, there were classes about child development. There were classes where you could work in the community with kids. There were volunteer opportunities. There were jobs. It was everywhere I looked. And maybe I missed it, but I kind of doubt it based on statistics. Were there things for other groups in the same way? And I don't think there were. I also think this notion of successful aging is problematic because successful aging basically means everything's working perfectly. Well, that means that even the people who are successfully aging at the moment, unless they're hit by a car, are going to eventually be failing at aging, which is absurd. So to me, successful aging is living the full arc of a human life. 
And that means there are changes and declines through the many decades of old age. And at the very end, most of us will be frail prior to death. I don't love the analogies to childhood because it infantilizes. And we don't actually move in a circle, we move forward. We have periods of life where we have greater dependency on others, and that's okay and normal. But we make it okay and normal if you're really pregnant or you break your leg or you're really young. Well, it's okay and normal where you're really old. Now, for the person who's growing old, it's hard. It's much harder to not have something and be heading towards it than to have had it and lost it. That is just a normal human reaction. It's infuriating, it's sad, it's frustrating, it's all those things, and it's entirely normal. So successful aging is living into a complete old age. And if we could just talk about life as having these three key phases and what's normal includes a huge diversity within elderhood, right? So there are people who work for decades decades into their elderhood. There are people who have accelerated aging by virtue of life trauma or disease. There are as many phases of old age as there are of childhood and adulthood. And I think the more we recognize that, and whenever we reference kids and adults also reference elders, or think about some concept across the generations, and not do it in a negative way, to just be able to talk about it. Like, if I'm lucky enough and I live to be old enough, I'm going to be frail and then I will die. And it's just that simple. And I will say, like, people find it horrifying to talk about that. But since I've been talking about it pretty constantly for 25 years, you really can just make it so it's just a normal part of life and you don't stress out. And, you know, when something happens to me, do I still panic a little bit? Of course, that's also normal and human. And those two things can absolutely coexist. What's often a challenge for myself is that I don't have self-doubt if something is not perfect and I don't ascribe it to getting older, but just the regular life. And I think that's also something we all have to be very aware of. And also recognizing the good things that happen. So I can't run the way I used to run even five or 10 years ago, but there's so many other ways in which what I can do is better. Sometimes we just have to talk about that and point it out too. Yes. So Linda says what many of us wonder, why does it seem there are so few geriatricians, gerontologists in the healthcare field? There's ageism everywhere. And as I was just talking about my education, you don't really see opportunities. We're starting to get more role models and more visibility. But I also think old people can be a part of that. So I didn't say this earlier when Mikiko was asking about the language, but one of the reasons to say, yes, I'm old, so what of it? Which admittedly, if you are over 70 or 80 or 90 or 100, then maybe I don't seem so old to you. But I teach people in their early 20s usually. So as far as they're concerned, maybe I'm in my 50s, maybe I'm in my 60s, maybe I'm in my 70s, they can't really tell. So I just say, old. And some people will start to say, well, oh no, you know, and I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with being old. So, you know, I'm old because compared to them, I am. If I'm talking about my medical school days in the nineties, I mean, it's like I rode the covered wagon. It's like very far away. They weren't born. So I think owning old and showing what old looks like. When we think about who's leading the government now, who's on the Supreme Court, who's leading the Senate, who's leading the House of Republicans, who's leading the White House, who's challenging for the White House, who's running the COVID response, All of these people are elders. Elders look lots of different ways. But when they're spending so much time and effort trying to not be what they are, then we can't expect the world to see and appreciate what old age is. So I think the more we can own old age and stand up for the rights and say, 
look, you know, you've got 92,000 pediatricians, kids rarely get sick. You've got 7,000 geriatricians. And, you know, just as kids disproportionately use education services in old age, we tend to need more health services. So we are not investing in our health workforce in proportion to the need of the populace. And there are ways we can structurally redo that, but we can also begin to change the culture. And frankly, I think it's happening anyway. You know, the silent generation was silent and the great generation was very stoic. But the baby boomers are noisemakers. And I think that's what we need. We need to stand up and say, we are human beings with rights. And when you are ignoring those rights, that's an injustice. And it's not legal in this country, although it happens all the time. We are trying hard to make more geriatricians. And as we become more visible, we're more likely to. We used to have trouble even getting too many students for our geriatrics interest group. And now there's a lot of them across our schools of pharmacy and nursing medicine. So I'm hopeful that the 20-somethings are paying attention. Given the history of aging, which you have laid out in your book, the experience of older age, isn't this a pretty good time we live in for older age? Probably. Actually, the, the fortunes of old age have gone up and down and varied a bit across different nations and cultures. It's interesting that I'm having to support this notion of elderhood, because even if you look at cave drawings, there's like little tiny kid people, and there's adult people, and then there's older people. Like We've always known that we came in sort of three major age flavors. This is a good time in the sense that many of us will live well into old age. It's a good time because people are more and more realizing that work broadly defined, women's work, volunteer work, work moves people's lives in many ways. So we're seeing more people working and creating a workforce. It's a moment of great awareness. You know, there are people like you doing innovative design for elders. There's the project that we're collaborating on, which is really about increasing people's agency and ability to sort of control and improve their lives and age in place and all those good things. And there are lots of people thinking in this area and writing in this area. One of the things I often mention is when I first became a geriatrician, I'd see nothing either in the medical literature or in you know, the newspapers or magazines about old age, really rarely, once or twice a year, maybe. And then 10 years ago, I'd see it monthly, and then it became weekly. And now, you know, it's really hard to keep up with everything that's being covered about old age. So I do think this is a moment of culture shift. And that's a huge opportunity for all of us, because never in human history have there been so many old people, and never have there been so many people thinking about how to do that well, and we could all be a part of it. So it's really an opportunity for innovation, creativity, reimagining. And so I think we should all contribute however we can. That's a perfect call to action. I think if we haven't been, you made us an activist. So <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you, Mikiko, also for being such a terrific host. And thank you, Luis, for being our star guest for At Home on Air. I enjoyed it too. Thanks for all the great questions. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, 
and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.